Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. This audio is brought to you by Canon Press. This week, you will hear a selection from Douglas Wilson's How to Exasperate Your Wife and Other Short Essays for Men. In this book, Doug explains why men's distorted view of wisdom handicaps their understanding of their wives, and he exposes rigid and wrong approaches to marriage and relationships. He gives practical advice for identifying unhappy households, mom is ignored, and replacing abdicating dads with true leaders. Measure strength, not in decibels, but performance. All combined with hot tips on exasperating your wife. You may start with leopard underwear. If you'd like to hear the rest of the audio, you can listen on the Canon app. If you'd like to buy the physical book, you can, of course, find it at canonpress.com. Chapter 10. Warrior Wuss. The American military is currently acting the part of a weak sister. The pressure is on to bring women into combat roles. Our military is going along in its inimitable and craven way with this declared intention to feminize the armed forces. The military hierarchy is crushing any principled objections that might arise within the ranks. Of course, as the current drill requires, the church stands mutely by, wondering what on earth this might all mean. Probably a sign of the end times. Indications of our cultural rot and dissolution are legion these days, but this one ranks in the top five. Not surprisingly, the problem can be traced back to the condition of the Christian family. Men do not understand that when they take a wife, they are to determine their subsequent duties from a careful scrutiny of the Word of God. They are not to take their orders from the spirit of the secular age. Neither are they to catch the latest feel-good wave of revival excitement, which is filling up our nation's stadiums with deep-throated panty wastes. About the only thing missing from the evangelical masculine renewal movement today would be the breast implants. Understanding our enemy and then fighting him never occurs to us. Our culture can perpetuate the most monstrous outrages against nature, and we evangelicals scurry around the edges of the orgy, trying to give somebody a tract. Too busy right now? Okay, maybe later. Brighten the corner where you are. Not one denomination which supports chaplains in the military has taken a stand against women in combat. Not one Christian parachurch organization serving the military has taken a stand against women in combat. This is not the source of the problem. Even these things are symptomatic. The broad failure of masculinity within our culture is a failure within the home, and in particular, within each home. Masculine duties are manifold, but surely one of the central duties of a husband is to protect his wife from harm. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Nehemiah 4.14b When necessary, he does this in concert with other men who are defending their families as well. This is the divine order established by God, and only impudence disputes it. This does not mean that the guys should fight when they are drafted by the collectivist state to lower the price of oil a few pennies per gallon. Rather, it means that husbands should accept as part of their central masculine identity the role of Lord Protector. Not only must this role be accepted, 
it must be felt in the bones. Christian men still fight, and many of them fight courageously and well, but almost no Christian men understand what fighting is supposed to mean. A nation defended by her women is a nation no longer worth defending. When women are placed in the front line of defense, every Christian man should walk away from the cause of that nation as being beneath contempt. Taking this a step further, a nation as far gone as to think that women in combat is a viable way to go is a nation which is no longer defensible in principle, even if there remains a misguided desire to defend it. Men who understand their duties in this regard, or men who are willing to recover an understanding of their duties, should recognize that the result of all our evangelical dithering is that the nation which we call the United States has already been lost. This means that men should begin to think through their responsibilities regarding the next round. This statement is not made in a column on the civil magistrate, but rather as an exhortation to husbands. A man must protect his family, and in the coming years a thinking man will be looking for a good hill to defend. How might that be done? Families should begin congregating in communities where these duties are understood, and the men of those communities have every intention of fulfilling those duties. Christian men who are in the military should get out at the first lawful opportunity and move to a community where they may defend their families instead of their current unwilling defense of the feminist agenda, which agenda appears at present to be a desire to turn the U.S. Navy into an offshore brothel. When God brings judgment upon a culture, that judgment is sometimes catastrophic. We sometimes debate among ourselves whether the coming judgment will be in that category or just a divine tap on the wrist. It does not occur to us to look at what has already happened. Neither does it occur to us to consider biblically the magnitude of what we have done. The prohibition to women in Deuteronomy 22.5 is one which blindsides us. We knew abortion and homosexuality were abominations, but here we are told, no woman shall put on the gear of war, Kalig Gabar. But why not? The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all that do so are abomination unto the Lord thy God. Deuteronomy 22.5 We are far gone in our commitment to these follies. A commercial for the armed forces can come on the television, and there we see a sweet little feminine face peering at us from the depths of her helmet, like a lonely pea in a soup bowl, and still we sit quietly, solemn as a judge. Chapter 11 A Home in the Right Key We often do not pay enough attention to what key we are in. We may pay close attention to what we are currently playing and what note comes next, but not enough concern is shown for the overall effect. What key are we in? Another way of saying this is that we defend and explain ourselves in the details, not recognizing that we have created a context that in effect completely dominates those details. There are many examples of this, in theology, in politics, and in family life. Just one example from theology should suffice to illustrate the point. In Reformed theology, many have adopted a certain understanding of the 
covenant of works and the covenant of grace. In this view, Adam was placed in the garden under a strictly legal covenant. He sinned against this covenant of works, and so then God established a covenant of grace. The problem is that the covenant of strict justice has already established what key we are in, and it is next to impossible to keep the works from that first covenant from seeping in to corrupt the grace of the second. It would be far better to see that God himself is an eternally covenanted Godhead of persons. The Father does not love the Son in a covenant of works, but rather as a fountainhead of inexhaustible covenant love. If we understand this as the ultimate covenant, then we will find that it is love and goodness and favor that keeps seeping into our lives. That is what we want. That is our sanctification. In other words, the key we established at the beginning of our music is crucial. So how does this apply to marriage? In many ways, we see the same tangles we get into in our theology duplicating themselves in our relationships with our spouses. A man and his wife are bound together by covenant. This much is plain in Scripture, Malachi 2.14, Proverbs 2.17. But is it a covenant of works or a covenant of grace? Paul commands husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and he commands wives to respect and honor their husbands in the same way that the church does Christ. This means that the covenant we are to imitate is the new covenant, a covenant of grace. But this means we must really understand grace. Not only must we understand grace, we must be able to see it as the ultimate reality in which we live and move and have our being. Because we are sinners, we can be surrounded by grace and still not be able to see it. Going back to the covenant with Adam in the garden, many theologians look at this and see a situation calling for raw obedience and strict merited justice. But this misses the wonderful context. God created Adam, placed him in a luxurious garden, created a beautiful woman to be with him and gave him all the fruit in the garden to eat with just one tree accepted. He even allowed him to eat from the tree of life. He walked with Adam in the garden in the cool of the day. This is all grace, unmerited favor. Adam had done nothing to deserve it. Like all grace, it created obligations. But there is a vast difference between a gracious obligation and a legal obligation. When conflict arises in a marriage that has the keynote of works and not grace, somebody hauls out the contract. Imagine a husband, Bible open to Ephesians 5, his finger jabbing at the verse that says, she should be submissive. Why aren't you keeping your end of this deal? Let us assume for a moment that he is right about the facts of the particular conflict, and let us assume that she should have been submissive and was not. Nevertheless, his behavior here shows that he is in the wrong key entirely. He wants the right thing done on the basis of a demand rather than wanting grace, his grace, to generate its own completely different kind of demand. Things are complicated further by that perverse sinfulness that wants to hold our spouse to a covenant of works while insisting that they should see us in the light of a covenant of grace. In other words, when I sin, what does she expect? I'm not Jesus. Doesn't she know how to forgive? But when she sins, we can't believe it. Look at this verse. 
What's her problem? Can't she read? In other words, my sin is a human foible. Her sin is perverse obstinacy. It reminds me of the old self-serving conjugation of a certain irregular verb. I am firm. You are stubborn. He is pig-headed. The basic question here is whether law operates in the context of grace or whether grace operates in the surrounding context of law. If the former, then marriage is delight upon delight. If the latter, then it is one conflict after another. In these two different marriages, the objective standards may be exactly the same, but they are played in different keys. Now a marriage defined and shaped by grace is not an antinomian marriage. Grace has a backbone. Grace can be sinned against. And it can and should object when this happens. But everything depends on how this happens. Law within the defining context of grace is true law. Law outside that context always rots and spreads the contamination to everything it touches, including what many husbands expect from their wives. Chapter 12. How to Exasperate Your Wife Not that I am an expert or anything. A woman comes into marriage with a certain set of naive assumptions about the density of her sweet baby's head. Some husbands may want their wives to develop a more realistic understanding, and that ipso pronto. If this is in fact the case, then certain trusty devices have been employed by more industrious husbands over the years, and they have worked in a very effective manner to this end. The first and most important thing to do is take a very strong stand on male leadership. By strong stand, I mean as measured in decibels and not by performance. The disparity between the two may draw unfavorable attention and reviews, marring the surface of domestic tranquility from time to time. When this happens, a man should demand in a loud, blustering voice why it is necessary to speak in that tone of voice. It seemed disrespectful. Another device favored by men who do not want to come off as a more traditional male is that of pseudo-sensitivity. Great concern must be expressed over the possible neglect of her vocational gifts and career opportunities. If that is played right, a woman can be maneuvered into working a full-time job alongside her husband's and all without her being relieved of any of her full-time responsibilities in the home. The enterprising husband can find himself with one job and two incomes, and he then has the opportunity to figure out ways to spend the money while she is spending her evenings doing the laundry. And a woman should not be allowed to spend very much money. In a strange kind of way, she might even learn to derive great satisfaction in how long she can make her 50 bucks last. In the meantime, her husband can spend money on a good bass boat, beer, a chop saw, a hunting rifle, beer, videos, that extra cable service carrying ESPN, and beer. When asked about this, he might intone that it would not be good to be penny-wise and pound-foolish. If she still asks for money to buy some clothes or shoes for herself, he should give her the money but act slightly disappointed in her desire to spend it on herself. He should not say anything, and if questioned about his silence, he should say, No, that's all right. <clears throat> A man should take special care to give his wife permission to homeschool. She has been asking for a couple years, and if he gives permission, this will keep her quiet for a couple more. 
Then, when she asks for some direction, discipline, or leadership in curriculum decisions, he can gently remind her that she was the one who requested that they do this. Fussiness over meals is also important. It is not important how the fussiness is exhibited, but it is essential that it be exhibited. One man may want to demand his food at six o'clock straight up. Another man may want his food piping hot. And yet another may want to insist on an entire absence of whatever vegetable it is that annoys him. He should make sure he talks about how various women at work or at church are good-looking. Just as a general observation, nothing important. Nevertheless, it is encouraging to note that more and more women are keeping themselves up these days. On a related note, he should be concerned about his wife's weight, and he should vocalize his concern from time to time in a helpful tone of voice. Unless he tells her that she has inadvertently put on a few pounds, she would probably never know. He must require at all times that she is never allowed to know more than he does in any area. If by happenstance she does, then there should be an unspoken assumption in the household that she should keep quiet about it. To do otherwise would be disrespectful. He must ensure that the television is on from the time he gets home until about 10.30 or 11. It will provide a comforting backdrop to the conversation and life of the family. If the television is on all the time, it provides a certain wallpaper for the mind, filling in those awkward silences. The wife should be given every opportunity of learning what shows and sporting events are important to him. And of course, at the end of the day, when the lights are turned down low, he should head off to bed like a simple-minded juggins, acting the part of a grinning prospector who is expecting to find a sexual El Dorado any minute now. And let's all wish him some luck. <laughs>